some questions for you. Thinking about Women in Translation Month and how, like, Host Publications has this enormous catalog of translated works that you did. Um, I was just wondering if you wanted to express your passion for translated works and, you know, what drew you to it? Well, I always felt when I started Host Publications that translated works, first of all, were a niche. They were something that weren't done. And that's what, you know, you're always looking for. And it's something I was very interested in because I think that bringing works over from other languages and other cultures is a way into other worlds Mm. and a way into looking through somebody else's eyes. And to take that a step farther to the topic we're talking about today, women in translation, for me as a man, that's two steps that I'm going through and seeing through two sets of eyes that I don't experience uh, in my day-to-day life. And the ability to read an artist putting together a life, a sense of experience is uh, connecting the dots the way you do in your day-to-day existence through poetry or novels or something. It's a way of seeing another type of understanding. And I feel that it helps me grow as a person. I don't need to just read books about, you know, American males having their issues and things like that. You know, that's fine because, you know, most people could, most American males might deal with them better than I do and I could learn something. But (laughs) to be able to see what the issues are that you're blind to because of the being that you are, then to see those beginning to work out by an artist, those are those are some of the questions that I think that translation and then women in translation in particular can bring to the table mm. when you're reading. And, uh, you know, that's what I was thinking when I was publishing. Wow. That's so beautifully said. I was also curious if there were any languages or a language in particular that drew you in or that you were specifically interested in uh, working with as a publisher in those times? No, it was uh, what was available. Mm-hmm. My connections through uh, Elizabeth were to Brazil and South America. And so that's where we started. And then Poland, of course. And so that's where we started. And I could have started anywhere because I'm, you know, except for smatterings here and there enough to pass a course, uh, I'm monolingual. And uh, it it could have been any language, Mm -hmm. any culture. And, you know, I, I was interested in moving forward into another. And so Brazil and Poland were wonderful for places to start. And then I stayed in South America and, you know, just grew from there. Yeah. The old slogan was literature from around the world. And it is from around the world. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We ended up publishing Chinese. We ended up publishing Yiddish. Uh, Oh, my gosh. That anthology is great. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, And then The Dirty Goat, the journal that we did, it had virtually every language you know we could get into yeah. the magazine there was uh, and finally uh, Eritrean and Farsi and things like that and you know we would always do them bilingually which was a challenge wow. and when I could find women authors it was doubly resonant for me you know because I feel that Women are a uh, underrepresented voice, and uh, to find out how they feel, how they write, how they react to the world around them, 
in other cultures, I think, gives us a way into thinking that uh, I think has been ignored. Yeah, there's several articles that I've read in preparation for this episode, and one of them mentioned a little statistic about the percentage of women in in translated literature. It's shocking, you know, because it seems like there's so much out there that I haven't read that I want to read in the category of women in translation, and so it feels like there's just so much of it. But the percentage of women that actually get published in translation is, is apparently still very, very small. Oh, I mean, you know, the number they throw around for translation period is 3%. Mm. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious as to what fraction of that 3% are women in translation. Yeah, I think these statistics might be a little old. So hopefully this has changed. But according to Google, as recently as 2018, it's 28.7% of the translations were written by women. So that's not great. You know, if you can do the math, that's about a quarter of 3%, mm. which is yeah. minuscule. So this is still super important to promote. Um, it's not just for funsies, though yeah. it is funsies. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, really, it's a really important perspective from the I mean, we're talking about the entire globe. Yes. Being able yes. to to read any work from other languages is a huge privilege, and and it's a privilege for authors to get translated from any language into any language, right? right? right. But that should be extended to everyone, <laughs> that privilege, yeah. um, to all writers. And while we're honoring women in translation, we can also just acknowledge the amount of labor and love that goes into translating. And we literally wouldn't have women in translation without the translators. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just so fascinating the the work that goes into really connecting with a writer. It's not a word-for-word -word translation. It shouldn't be. Like a great poet should translate like the essence and the voice of the poet that they're working on. And yeah, and we're so lucky. Um, there's so much to be said about translation as well. And, you know, we'll talk about Sawaku Nakayasu a little later, but I just love the kinds of conversations that she gets rolling based on what does it mean to be a translator? And yeah. that there's actual art in translating. I think that's beautiful and that's exciting. Um, but I agree, it can be hard to like know where to start, when to start. Oh, yeah. And we're just so lucky to have like Malvern Books as a place here in mm -hmm. Austin for us to step into. And it's literally poetry and translation is mm -hmm. a quarter of the room. And the other quarter, another quarter is fiction and translation. It's... It's an exciting space to, to browse. Malvern Books is the keeper of our vices. Um, <laughs> we have absolutely no control over ourselves in that bookstore. <laughs> Yay. We love Malvern. So huge shout out to Malvern, as always. And um, I have, like, in the last couple of days, formulated my own personal reading list for the month of August. And, you know, it's pretty lofty in aspiration and I probably won't get to all the books and I'm fine with that because um, obviously I can read them all year long but uh yeah I have about five books that I'm gonna try to to get to this month and I'm, I'm super excited about it what are what are a couple of your titles for this month so I'm really excited about the Age of Skin. Oh, why did I say that one? Because I can't say the author's name. I just <laughs> cannot say it. It's Dubravka Ugresic, perhaps. The Age of Skin. I think that's as I think that's as close as uh, I could get, or much closer. The last name I'm not quite sure about, but yeah. So that's a collection of essays that seems really fascinating. Um, I definitely bought it at Malvern. And uh, I'm really excited to read this this collection of poems I've I've had on my shelf for a while called Reign of the Future 
by Valerie Meher. Oh, yeah. And it has an introduction by Raul Zarita. So that is kind of mm-hmm. where my interest got really mm. peaked. Um, yeah. So I'm really excited. It's a pretty book, too. It's got gold on the cover. So that's always fun. Yeah, that is a beautiful <laughs> book. That is a really beautiful book. Yes. Is that Action Books? Yes. Okay. Action Books is a great press. Yeah. It's a great choice. Yeah, so those are a couple. Um, And I, of course, included those on our official host publications, Women in Translation Reading List for 2021, which is (laughs) out of control. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Ever growing. (laughs) Yeah, it will probably grow between now and the time that we post this episode. So we we have a lot of books that we love by Women in Translation, and we want to share those with everybody, and I'm so excited to do that. So we'll be posting the full list on the blog and then some teasers on our socials. But yeah, what titles are you all excited about this year? You go ahead, Anar. Oh, oh my gosh. So mark your calendars for September 2021 because Claire and I are going to be buying every copy of Shapeshifter by Alice Palin Rahon, who is just an artist, painter, poet, Mm -hmm. um, who is akin to like Leonora Carrington and Remedio Varos. And if you have the opportunity to go to the Blanton Museum, Right next to a Leonora Carrington painting is an Alice Rahom painting, and it is just so stunning. And I was just like, a poet painted this. And then I sent a picture to, to Joe and Claire, and I was just like, oh my God. Oh yeah, yeah, that was awesome. And then I did some Googling, and I was like, oh my God, a book. New York Review of Books is putting out this little collection. So it just like worlds collided for me that day. But I recently bought based on Joe's recommendation and inspired by this list The Slinks by Tatiana Tolstaya. Mm. Oh yeah, yes. Translated by Jamie Gambrell. Also a New York Review of Books book. <laughs> yes, NYRB really brings it. That is a really fun dystopian book. We did it for the book club a year ago, a year and a half ago, and it was it was a big hit. Very strange. Very strange and disarming. Yes. I'm looking forward to it. Joe, what are you getting into? Well, at the store, we are starting our long session on Clarice Lispector. Yes. So I am really excited about reading her work. I've wanted to do it for a while, and now... Uh, you know, now it's it's on my to-do list. And yeah. so we're going to start with The Passion According to G.H. And uh, that is a really exciting trip for me uh, into, again, Brazil, a woman from Brazil. You know, some consider her Brazil's greatest writer of the 20th century. Nice. And uh, it, it will be fun to... Uh, read and explore her work over the next few months. And uh, I am all with Claire and agree with, I love Dubrovka Gresik, you know, Mm -hmm. as I will uh, mispronounce. Uh, I like American Fictionary a lot. That's her older book, but it still rings very true to her wit and another a person from another culture in another world uh, looking at the United States and giving little uh, snippets of satire and wisdom, you know, that only an outsider can do. And I, I really love that book. So those are the two that I'm really got on my plate right now. And it's exciting. You know, it's a venture. Yeah, it's like it's a holiday for us. It's a holiday (laughs) season for us because we're always reading and it's so nice to have something to organize our reading around collectively. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also just such a great feeling that, you know, you're doing something great for yourself and also something really great for publishing and for the writers and the translators. It's just it's a good thing all around. So I get I get all the good feels from from this time of year. Oh, I want to I want to highlight one more title before we 
move on, which is another book on our reading list that's translated by a woman. So that's another interesting and important element to this whole celebration is um, The Odyssey. Right, right. <laughs> was yes. finally translated by a woman by Emily Wilson. And this this has uh, been out for... Joe, it's been out for a couple of years, right? Yeah, it's been out for at least three years now. But an amazing achievement. And some are calling it the best translation of the Odyssey. So that's exciting. (laughs) I've only read the introduction to that. It's a lengthy introduction. And it's just so insightful and so fun. It's just fun. It, it it changes your view of the Odyssey. Wow. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's very, very different. And that's another great point, which is that these stories change so much based on the translation. <laughs> and so to have a woman's mind and, and voice as part of that translation is bound to be a completely different reading experience. So, yeah, I'm really excited to reread that book. Yes. Thanks for bringing that up, Claire. I I think that I'm going to try it this year. I think I'm going to finally do it. Uh, and it's just such a beautiful, beautiful copy. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about our specific books. Yeah. yeah. So I just have to say that I have fallen in love with this book. I have fallen in love with the author. Oh. I've fallen in love with the subject matter. I want to just have this book with me all the time. Um, It answers a lot of the questions that I discussed before about seeing the world through a woman's eyes. And it's, it's just so beautifully done. And the book I'm talking about is relatively new, published by Biblioasis. It's called A Ghost in the Throat by... Darren Nagrifa from Ireland. And it's just a stunning, stunning book. It's a memoir. It's a novel. It's a poem. It's a translation of a poem. It's been described as a detective story because the author goes in to try to discover who the writer is, Eileen Dove McConnell. You know, who is this woman who wrote 200 years ago? As she says early in the book, she says, I was 11 years old when we met and you had been dead for 200 years. And let me tell you, it was not love at first sight. You know? <laughs> but the, the intensity that this work is, that the work by Eileen Dove McConnell is absorbed by Darren Negrifa, and she absorbs it into her body, and it just becomes part of her. Mm. It's her breath. And, you know, Darren Negrifa is an award-winning poet from Ireland. And so the idea that you get to read her translation of this long poem, it's called A Keen, which is a lament for a person who you loved or who has died and it's just unbelievable and what's so great in the there's a refrain in the book that this is a female text and you know you're like okay fine it was written by one what does a female text mean well a female text usually means that it's almost forgotten Mm-hmm. And what's brilliant about this is this is a work that was passed on through the oral tradition. It was recited. It was caught in the heart and in the breath of women. And they would recite it to their daughters. This is also a book about the relationship between mothers and daughters. And it's just it wraps everything up in a messy, messy bucket <laughs> because that's what life is. It's a messy, messy bucket. It's just, it's just stunning. And I can't say enough about this book and uh, recommend everybody read it. Wow. It sounds so powerful and chaotic and just 
it, it almost feels like from the little I've heard about it that she's like channeling the intensity from that original poem into this new just like a new container for for it um I haven't read it so I've, I have no idea what that looks like but I definitely feel like whatever the uh, emotional register of that original poem is seems to be what carries over into this book yeah it's it's like when she translates it that's a step she goes around and she just recites lines over and over again to herself because the lines are inside of her and then she translates them into english and she crumples them up and throws them away and she crumples them up and throws them away and it's just heart-wrenching seeing mm -hmm. her trying to catch the breath and the energy of the original poem and you know do what she can wow. it's just beautiful there's a very telling scene early in the book where the narrator author darren negrifa you know you could ask her if this was really her where she is holding a human heart and it's like she carries that image with her for the rest of her life and she says this is where the poem is but yet there's so much more there's so much more. There's the erasure of women. There's mm -hmm. the erasure of the history of women and how she cannot find the biography. She cannot find the grave of Eileen Dove McConnell. She can only find hints if she's mentioned in a marriage agreement or a letter from a man to another man. You know, there's nothing of hers because it was not considered worthy to be kept. And so she just gets erased from history. And this book seems like a project that is meant to bring her back. Yes, it's it's to bring her back, but bring her back as a feminine text, as she says. This is not a a normal text because this is a text that lives within you and then comes out. Like any text that's passed down in an oral tradition it's alive yes yes it's very very alive and if i may i'd like to read just a bit please yes. i'd like to read the very beginning of the book that is the first chapter it's called a female text this is written by darren mcgriva she starts with says this is a female text this is a female text composed while folding someone else's clothes. My mind holds it close, and it grows tender and slow, while my hands perform innumerable chores. This is a female text born of guilt and desire, stitched to a soundtrack of cartoon nursery rhymes. This is a female text, and it is a tiny miracle that it even exists. And it does, in this moment, lifted to another consciousness by the ordinary wonder of type. Ordinary, too, the ricochet of thought that swoops now from my body to yours. This is a female text written in the 21st century. How late it is. How much has changed. How little. This is a female text, which is also a quina, a dirge, a drudge song, an anthem of praise, a chant, a keen, a lament, and an echo, a chorus, and a hymn. Join in. Wow. And then the book that begins. so beautiful. It's so beautiful. I just want to read that part over and over again. You know, and then she goes through how she gets to know the poem and the experiences that she has with it, and it doesn't leave her, and that she builds a world around this poem. And that's the novel of the poem. It's a historical novel. It's a mm. novelization of what happened in this period. And when Darren Negrief is reading it and talking about it in a class when she's 11 or 12 years old, she talks about how the woman 
holds her husband around his waist and they ride on the horse and the teacher snaps her fingers and said that's nowhere in the text stop using your imagination <sighs> and so you know she builds this poem she builds this poem yet she slaps herself down when she gets a little bit too imaginative she says no i really don't know that i really don't know what they said to each other but I think they said this, mm -hmm. and she goes on. It's just so great. I could talk about it forever, but you guys have <laughs> great books to talk about, too. Oh my gosh. I just want to read that well, book now. <laughs> yeah. Joe, you sold the book to us. Um, it's my job. <laughs> it sounds like a conjuring. Yes. It is. It is. It's exactly what it is. It's conjuring. That's it. The poem is the breath. It's the magic. It's what inhabits your life you know it's it's just how can we put together the detritus of the world around us into something that's beautiful and makes some semblance of sense and that is poetry and that's what this book presents wow that is such a great book to like kick us off joe thank you so much yeah i thought that it just in in inhabited everything and uh thank you for indulging me and letting me and letting me talk about this book oh, i mean it, you're right in it's the perfect book to kick us off because i mean it's hybrid in genre and its scope seems so organic and like part of its project is yes to conjure this poet this lost poet and also to recreate a history and like if someone's history is lost there's no systematic way to do that and so the only way to do it is through like conjuring and poetry mm -hmm. and taking the scraps that are left and sort of breathing life back into them um now that I know a little more about what it's doing, the the sort of form of it, the chaotic form of it makes a lot of sense. Yes, yes. You know, and if, if I can add that this is a feminine text, this is what Darren Negrief is doing feels like a feminine technique. You know, mm. as women, we kind of are left to our own devices sometimes and conjuring and intuition and imagination seems to be something that we can still hang on to and so it's it's really exciting to see or to hear that this book pulls from so much that is like part of just what it is to be a woman and like what tools and resources we have at the end of the day no one of the one of the major sections of the book is about uh darren agrifa has a a very difficult pregnancy and, you know, it's it's very nerve-wracking and it's very much on edge about whether the baby will survive and, you know, why and things like that, any attachment. You know, it's just, it's, it's perfect. <laughs> That's Aww. all I can say. It just has, oh, it has everything. Thank you, Joe. That just moved <laughs> all the way to the top of my reading list. Yes. <laughs> Claire, what did you bring for us today? Yeah. Um, so today I'm talking about Our Lady of the Nile by Scholastic Mukasonga, who is a Rwandan author. Um, and this title of hers, this is her first novel, and it was translated from the French by Melanie Mothner. Archipelago Books put this title out a few years ago. And Archipelago did release a new title of Scholastic Mukasangas recently, so there's more to be read. Um, but the new book is called Igifu, and it's short stories. And I'm just particularly taken with this novel, so I wanted to talk about this one. Um, and I don't know about y'all, but I have, I have a lot of blind spots uh, as a reader. And African literature is a huge one. Um, mm -hmm. I remember reading Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achibe in college, but I, I just like, I, I really haven't gone down the rabbit hole, as they say, with any any African country in translated literature. And I do think it's less visible. It's a little harder to find. So 
I really cherish these books that are coming out of Scholastic Mukasungas, and I think that, you know, she's done really well, and she's got such amazing stories to tell. I do believe that uh, we can expect more translations to come from Archipelago Books, uh, who handles her work so beautifully. So, um, huge shout out to Archipelago. So a little background on Mukosonga as a writer. She was born in Rwanda in 1956. And I think most of us know that that country has been riddled with violence for at least our entire lifetime. And so from childhood, she experienced um, violence and starvation and a lot of really difficult times um, through the ethnic conflicts that that shook Rwanda and continue to uh, to this day, unfortunately. Um, and her, her family was displaced in 1960, and she ended up settling in France in 1992. Uh, she ended up basically moving into exile, but she ended up going to, to a university in France in 1992, only two years before the Rwandan genocide. Mm. So she made it out, but sadly, most of her family did not. Pretty much all of her family was lost in the 1994 Rwandan genocide. And I, I didn't know a whole lot about that, which is also kind of insane because it's one of these major pieces of his world history that have taken place in in my lifetime um and again i think there's a huge blind spot and i think i mean i know that african history no matter what country you're talking about gets really whitewashed by colonialism so the stories that we do hear and what we do know of these events are told in a way that is just wrong <laughs> so what's amazing is that her writing all of her writing she has nonfiction and fiction focuses on those experiences that she went through growing up in Rwanda. And so it's all really intense and really specific to her experience, but it also sheds so much light on these broader, like, historical events. And so this is her first novel, and it won a ton of prizes, it was a finalist for the 2019 National Book Awards for Translated Literature, and it was adapted as a film by Atik Rahimi, but I cannot find this film anywhere online. So if anyone out there knows how to get it, I have been trying desperately for days and I've seen the trailer and it looks amazing. So Our Lady of the Nile, it takes place in a boarding school for Rwandan girls. Parents send their daughters there to become molded into these respectable citizens they, they learn french and they are are essentially it's a microcosm of colonialism <laughs> in this boarding school but you don't really know that her writing is so vivid and so clean and it moves so quickly that you're just so invested in the characters and the story that you don't realize those broader movements are happening until you've read the novel. But it's really high drama kind of from the start, even though there's all the fun stuff that goes along with a boarding school for girls, right? A Catholic boarding school, right? They're at the convent. There's the nuns. It's colonialism lends a whole other shade to this. So, you know, these Rwandan girls are, of course, have all their opinions about the white nuns. And then they have their Rwandan and nuns as well and it's just this interesting mixture of people coming together and then within the Rwandan girls there's there's two of course two what are referred to as ethnic groups um what spurred the Rwandan genocide is this divide between the Tutsis and the Hutu and so there's you know so much drama around that and it is kind of packaged just like teenage girl drama, um, but in this other completely different country with its own cultural references and stuff. So that part of it is super fun to read and also really terrifying because the stakes are so much higher. And the drama is not just drama. It's like there's real violence in the subtext. Um, mm. But the prose is just masterful and among like all of these, there's no like protagonist, you know, and I also love that about convent or nunnery novels. I, if anyone's ever read um, The Corner That Held Them by Sylvia yeah. Townsend Warner, yeah. it's like the classic example of like the convent itself is the protagonist. And so you're just getting these snippets and interactions of all these people's lives. But 
while they're there, they're like forbidden to speak Swahili and it focuses on different girls whose lives are linked. But it's obvious that like the ethnic division between the Hutu and the Tutsi is really like the core of the story. And um, Mukasonga is a, a Tutsi who was exiled from Rwanda and she was actually had to leave her school. And so in this novel sort of builds up to to this moment where the Tutsi girls have to flee for their lives. And so that's that is based on her real life. Um, but there is some some parts of the conflict that are handled sort of comically. So like in the beginning, there's this statue of the Virgin Mary and one of the Hutu girls who is named Gloriosa, who hates Veronica and Virginia, who are the two Tutsi girls, um, wants to sneak out to the statue and destroy the nose on it because the features are more classically like Tutsi features. And she wants Mm -hmm. to like try to chisel it to make it look more like a Hutu. And then she ends up, of course, cracking the nose right off the statue in the middle of the night and then makes up this whole story about how they were attacked by (laughs) bandits. And so it's like these really intense like motivations for these things to happen. I find that just so it's so masterful. Um, I love the idea of reading the teenage experience teenage girl experience which is just such a unique human experience so distinct uh but I love the idea of like witnessing that age and that demographic in a different country um and I'm sure that you can see like the similarities it's like being a teenage girl it's kind of the same everywhere and yet so different. I think that's why this is such a brilliant novel is because it's so familiar and also so incredibly distant at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's like all the particularities of Rwandan culture and the food and the styles of dress that are popular and the way they're doing their hair and the celebrities that they idolize and how they mm-hmm. all become obsessed with like one of the French guys who teaches history or something. Um it's like all of these little particularities and and the fact that they're in a Catholic school, right? And so there's there's a familiar narrative there too, where we know what the implications of that are and sort of the ins and outs of being at a boarding school with nuns. But mm-hmm. oh my God, the colonialism added on top of all of that, where they're clearly trying to eradicate their culture from them in this process. And so that's why it's so wonderful. And I'm gonna read a passage that um kind of expresses this where they they hang on to their Rwandanness in these genius rebellious ways and never have you wanted teenagers to rebel more <laughs> right yes. because it's like them maintaining the essence of who they are and a connection to their families and their families are the ones who sent them there, but it's it's just all so complex. And also, I just learned, I learned so much. So I think you'll really get what I mean by, like, the simplicity and matter-of-factness of her prose when I read this passage. Um, it's, like, understated and elegant. So I'm going to read from the beginning where the girls have all just come back to school after, I think, the summer break. And so they've all returned and... The scene has been set for us at this school up in the mountains, up near one of the um, estuaries of the Nile, basically. And they've unpacked. And this is a little descriptive passage of some of the food that they uh, sneak into the convent. So suitcases became well-stocked pantries filled by doting mothers, beans and cassava paste with a special sauce in little enameled containers decorated with large flowers and wrapped in a piece of cloth. Bananas slowly baked overnight. Ibishiki, sugar cane, you chew and chew until a pure fibrous marrow fills your mouth with its sweet juice. Red gahungenzi sweet potatoes corn cobs, peanuts, and even, for the city girls, donuts of every color under the sun, a secret Swahili recipe, avocados you can only buy at Kigali markets, and extra salty red roasted peanuts. At night, as soon as the monitor had left the dorm, the feast began. The suitcases were opened, and all the victuals laid out on the beds. One of the girls would check that the monitor was fast asleep, 
But some of the monitors, like Sister Rita, weren't fools and were quite willing to be corrupted in order to join the banquet. An assessment was made of everyone's provisions, and it was decided what should be eaten first before the evening's menu was planned. Any selfish, greedy girl who tried to keep a little of her pantry for herself and deprive the communal banquet was roundly condemned. Alas, the supplies soon ran out, and after two or three weeks, there was nothing left but a few handfuls of peanuts reserved for emergency consolation on really bad days. The girls would have to resign themselves to eating whatever was served in the refectory. Tasteless bulgur, a yellow paste with a sonorous name, polenta, that stuck to the palate, and that Father Angelo, a regular guest from the neighboring mission, wolfed down with relish. Soft little oily fish out of cans, and sometimes on Sundays and holidays, meat from who knows what sort of animal called corned beef. Everything the whites eat, moaned Godlieb, comes out of cans, even the sliced mango and pineapple swimming in syrup. And the only real bananas they serve us are the sweet bananas at the end of the meal. But that's not how you eat bananas. As soon as I get home for vacation, me and my mother will prepare real bananas. We'll oversee the kitchen hand as he peels and cooks them in water with tomatoes. Then my mother and I will add everything else. Onions, palm oil, very mild spinach, quite bitter isogi leaves, and small dried fish. It'll be a real feast with my mother and sisters. You don't know anything, Gloriosa said. What you need is peanut sauce, inkiniga, and then cook slowly, really slowly, so that the sauce infuses right to the heart of the bananas. But if you cook with butane gas and a saucepan like they do in the city, Modesta butted in, the bananas will cook too fast, and they won't be soft and creamy. You need to use a clay pot and charcoal. It takes a very long time. I'll give you the real recipe. It's my mother's. It's got to cook nice and slow, but if you're patient, you'll get lovely white bananas, soft and creamy all the way through. And you have to eat them with some buttermilk and invite your neighbors. My poor Modesta, said Goretti. Your mother is always so fussy with her lovely white immaculate bananas served with milk. You always take after your mother. I'll tell you what to make for your father. Dark red bananas that have soaked up the bean juice. Bananas for true Rwandans who've got the strength to wield a hoe. You're all city girls, said Virginia, or from rich families. You've never eaten bananas in the fields. That's where they're at their best. Often when we're working in the fields and we don't have time to go home, we'll light a little fire and grill a couple of bananas. Not in the flames, of course, but in the red-hot embers. So what do you come to the Lycee for, said Gloriosa. You should have stayed in the sticks munching bananas in the fields. You would have made room for a real Rwandan from the majority people. She's referring to the Hutu. Sure, I'm from other country, and I'm not ashamed of it, but I am ashamed of what I just said and of what we've all been saying. Do Rwandans ever talk about what they eat? It's shameful to talk about that. It's shameful even to eat in front of others. They'll be ringing soon for the refectory, said Gloriosa. Come along, and you, Virginia, you'll have no choice but to open your mouth in front of us and eat up the leftovers of real Rwandan girls. Wow, that was... That that sounds so delicious. <laughs> I just love the banana passage because they just, it's like they ran out of all the treats they brought and their, their mom's packed in their suitcases. And now they just have white people food to eat and it sounds really boring. So they're just dreaming about all these different kinds of bananas. And I'm just like, it all sounds so interesting and good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the way they, they differentiate the culture, you're a field person mm -hmm. you're a you're a city person you don't really know how to eat bananas you know yes <laughs> and so specific um this is at the beginning when we're just getting to know all these different names and voices sort of chiming in all at once so that makes that passage a lot of fun too because it hasn't started getting into the specifics of who any of these people are so it's how you kind of start to get to know them and um I'm sure you picked up on some of the undertones of the the sort of ethnic conflict between some mm -hmm. of the girls, which just develops further as as the story moves. But, you know, it gives me pause because they're all in the same school together. And it's like any racist behavior you might observe where someone just gets in a jab here and there. And it's clear that they don't like these certain people and they're very open about that. 
And that's one thing. And it seems not harmless, but it's not violent. But the way that that escalates into violence in the end yeah, is, I mean, it's something that we deal with in our own country in a very different way, but it does make those little incidents, those little aggressions so much heavier when you realize that they're leading up to something else, literal genocide. And Scholastic Mukasanga does such a great job of sprinkling them in at the beginning. And so it's just like, okay, this is normal. There's tension, but it's just girls, right? Oh, but it's not, um, yeah. sadly. Wow, that that's really fascinating. It reminds me of, um, like, being Latina and how within Latin culture um, you, you nitpick at, like, like, well, you know, this is how they cook their food. Um, with Honduran culture, it's the platano, it's the plantain, which is mm-hmm. essential for, it, you know, growing up. It was in every meal in one way or another. Um, and then other people fry it and eat them as chips. And you're like, that's not right. But, but yeah, there's there's these microaggressions that are very different than what I see in American culture, where it's much more general, which is like, well, you're Hispanic and this means that. But within cultures where you pretty much look very similar to other people, um, I've noticed that there's, you know, well, your family lives out in the mountains and Mm -hmm. you can only afford to eat fish um, or you speak with this accent and it's, it's just so intimate and so personal. But then mm-hmm. at the end of the day, like you come to America and it doesn't matter because it's like you're going to be treated just the same way as anyone else from your country because yeah. this is America. And Well, it's it's it is fun to hear them like throwing shade at each other's family's preparations of bananas and I did not realize before I read that out loud how many times I was going to say bananas (laughs) but um I just think that's such a brilliant move I mean she's she's showing how small it starts out like because you look at something like the word genocide is just it's it's a crazy thing to comprehend even Mm -hmm. and you know we can't really Mm -hmm. and it's like how does that even start and and I don't think that like this book is trying to answer that question it's just showing how these little experiences that she had these little specific micro experiences sort of bloomed into broader and broader aggressions that actually caused her to have to flee there's a great quote from music and literature we should welcome the opportunity to read Mukasanga's work in English because African Francophone literature, and particularly that written by women, continues to be underrepresented in English. And as a result, we're not only missing out on compelling stories, but an important political project. Scholastic Mukasanga, like many of her colleagues who we have yet to translate, is working to correct the frustratingly persistent Western narratives about Africa and its history. The West has indeed too often dismissed suffering in Africa, but books like Our Lady of the Nile remind us why we must not be dismissive, why we must not look away. Yes. It's a great book, and I I really just love it. Um, But I think that that Madeline LaRue from Music and Literature just put it so perfectly. We can't really re-educate ourselves in any better way, I don't think, um, than reading books like this. Wow. (sighs) Thank, Thank you, you Claire. so much, Claire. Thanks, guys. That's a very powerful, very powerful book. Anar, what did you bring for us? Yeah. Well, I'm really excited that it's Women in Translation Month. As you know, we love translated works. In the past, we've brought and discussed Chika Sagawa, but we can't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we can. You know, in my love for Chika Sagawa, I kind of discovered... Sawaku Nakayasu, who is an Asian-American poet and has published her own work through Wave, um, a couple of essays through Ugly Duckling, and just does a lot of work in the world of translation, translating Japanese into English. And last fall, 
some just like powerhouse translators brought to us through Wave Books, Yi Song, Selected Works, nice. edited by Don Mi Choi, and translated by Jack Young, Sawaku Nakayasu, Don Mi Choi, and Joyelle McSweeney. Nice, and what a project. It is a project indeed. There's no better way to right. describe right. this thick collection here. Just absolutely gorgeous. Um, you know, Wave puts out really beautiful books, but I have a passion for organization (laughs) (laughs) and was really delighted by the way that this was organized, that this was an effort put in by multiple brilliant translators and poets in their own right. The book itself, it's selected works. There's essays, there's um, short stories, there's poetry translated from Korean and poetry translated from Japanese. And so Jack Young does the Korean translations and Sawaku Nakayasu does the Japanese translations. And it's all the same poet, Yi Song? All the same poet. Okay. And Yi Song was a male poet, but I felt the need to highlight women translators, Mm. particularly Sawaku Nakayasu and our editor, Don Mi Choi, because there's an art to translation and I just really admire the way that Sawaku Nakayasu talks about translation, um, talks about the labor and what it means to translate. Mm -hmm. So this is divided into sections and there is a Japanese poems section that Sawaku Nakayasu translated and at the beginning of that section Sawaku wrote an introduction that is just like really beautiful and I will read an excerpt. Claire, I know you love Chica more than I do. I and, do. Um, there's just so many similarities <laughs> between the works of Yi Song and Chika Sagawa. Mm. Were they contemporaries? So I guess he lived in the 1930s. So yes, I think so. There's a lot of similarities. And, um, you know, let me let me introduce Yi Song. Okay. Yes. So Yi Song was a painter, architect, poet, and writer of 1930s Korea when the Korean peninsula was under Japanese colonial rule. Mm. And Yi Song wrote and published in both Korean and Japanese until his early death from tuberculosis at the age of 27 after his imprisonment by Japanese police for thought crimes in Tokyo. Wow. And Yi Song is considered one of Korea's most experimental writers. Um, of Korean modernism, and his works engaged with European modernism like surrealism, Dada, and Italian futurism, just like our girl Chica. I was going to say, yeah, that they, they're definitely, we would consider them contemporaries, even though they were in different countries. And she also died young. Yeah. <sighs> Crushing, but... Their work yeah. is a gift to us all, and we're so fortunate to have such incredible translators bringing these works to life. And I'm not going to read from this section, but I really love something that Sawaku says, which is that Yi Song repurposes the tools of the avant-garde as instruments of rebellion. And that's awesome. Yes, yes. <laughs> and you really see that happen on the page. And a lot of these poems are extremely visual. They lend themselves to the page. They really work as images, um, both translated and in the original language. So I will be reading a poem as well, but I also recommend listening to um, Center for Korean Studies at UCLA on their YouTube Last February, they did an interview with Jack Jung and Sawaku Nakayasu, and they were so prepared. They shared their screens. Um, they read in Korean and in Japanese, as well as translations. And then they did a Q&A. You know, this pandemic is just absolutely terrible, but we have access to to things and programming that was supposed to be for students. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, sitting on YouTube. a lot of it's online. <laughs> Which is such a great thing for us. They provide so much context and it's just really thrilling to have that kind of information and insight at our fingertips. So an excerpt Mm -hmm. from the introduction to the Japanese poems of Yi Song by Sawaku Nakayasu. 
One of Walter Benjamin's metaphors for translation says, while content and language form a certain unity in the original, like a fruit and its skin, the language of translation envelops its content like a royal robe with ample folds. Indeed, translation often reflects a translator's admiration or perhaps their desire to wear someone else's text, to try it on, like the handbook-wearing visitors at the royal palace. The ample folds signal an acceptable looseness, even when the royal robes are the correct size. They will never fit exactly, like fruit to its skin. In Yi Song's case, his relationship to the Japanese language was mandated by colonization, though certainly not based on admiration. And yet his poetic use of the colonial language manifests an internal and intralingual translation of sorts, taking place even before the moment of writing. Just as he wrote in Japanese from a locale outside of it, Yisong mirrors the position of the translator being on the outside of an original text or language while on the inside of the new translation, desire and opposition embed themselves into this third space between languages. This is such a rich and insightful introduction that it's worth just getting this book for this kind of yeah. commentary. Yeah, and you can tell Sawako is a poet <laughs> yes. with her yes. use of metaphor and language there. And I do think that being a poet has got to be a huge boon as a translator. I mean, to have that kind of deft use of language as part of your artistic practice already, it makes sense. They go hand in hand. They do. And at this point, I really consider Suwaku Nokayasu like an artist in the way that she navigates translation and... She's been doing it for 20 plus years, and she really does such wonderful things in her mm -hmm. conversations. And just like the poets that she translates are, are you know, surreal Japanese poets, which is yeah. very special. I, I always know that if she's translated a poet that I've never heard of before, I'm going to like that poet's work because it seems yeah. that what she chooses to translate is right up my alley. I mean, I just think that's why I'm such a fan of her as a translator is, is what, what she chooses to translate. She's very special to us. Yes, we love her. <laughs> and, you know, for those listening, Claire and I hope to together enough context to someday maybe even have a conversation with Sawaku Nakayasu. Yeah. But we're very fortunate that there's some great essays, The Ugly Duckling title, Say Translation is Art, mm -hmm. which we're going to include on our list. And yeah, there's even <laughs> YouTubes out there. So yeah. dig in, y'all. I was just going to see if you wanted to read one of the poems. Yes, I would love to read a poem to you. Um, so the poem that I will read today does not have very many shapes or too much influence, like a ton of influence from Italian futurism. So it's a little bit easier to, to read, but mm -hmm. there's some really exciting things on the page. Um, so this one is titled Hunger. No snack bag in my right hand, I said, and backtracked five lee on the path I just came in search of the snack bag, clutched by my left hand. This hand has fossiled. This hand no longer wants ownership of anything, will no longer even feel the ownership of that which is owned. If the thing in the process of falling right now is snow, then my tears that just fell should be snow. My interior and exterior and each and every midpoint regarding the system is frighteningly cold. Left, right. These hands on either side forget their obligations to each other and never again shake hands. And upon this road that needs cleaning, that is full of difficult labor, sprawled about, I persist in independence, but... It must have cold. It must have cold. Who points at me and calls me lonely? 
Just look at this rivalry of warlords. Just look at this war. I fall into a stupor in the middle of the fever attack of their discord. Tedious months and years flow by and I open my eyes to see. I imagine a quiet moonlit night after the corpses have evaporated. Oh, innocent dogs of the hamlet, don't you bark. My body temperature is irresponsible and my hopes are sweet indeed. Wow. That's a great poem. Uh, really beautiful. Um, this poem also represents, you know, you have the hands that are not communicating. So there's, it really reflects like this push and pull and splitness in identity, hunger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just, I just love this poem. I love how it, in the imagination, there's like the ability to move in and out of time and imagining after the corpses have all evaporated Mm -hmm. this like beautiful moonlit night. That's such a charged image because it's almost like history being erased or the present being erased, but also it's like a tinge of hope as well. And the sweet hopes in the last line. Oh my gosh. It's really disturbing and surreal and strange and, and also hopeful at the same time, which is amazing. It's my favorite combination of things, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and there's just this tenderness that that translates because of the love that was put into the translation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're not featuring Jack Zhang's work, but the Korean poems are also just such a gift and so powerful but yeah I'm just so grateful for this collection there's just so much here Mm -hmm. and kind of like um what you were saying earlier about there's these blind spots you know I took how many years of Texas history I know everything there is about (laughs) Texas but like you like there's these blind spots in my literary curriculum that kind of understanding what happened in 1930s Korea and opening my world up to that and like reading the works of young poets. Chika was in her early 20s when she wrote some of our favorite poems. Um, Yisang was a young man when he wrote these poems and it, there's, there's something about feeling contemporary and feeling like the spirit of these voices that lived at this point 80 or 90 years ago that still feel very alive and very current. Yeah, that's an, that's an amazing thing. You wouldn't think you'd find something to personally relate to with the distance of, of time and culture and region of the world. Yeah. But, you know, that's, that's also kind of heartening that there's just this elemental strand of humanity that we all contain and... You find it in poetry. Yeah. You find it in poetry. And so, yeah, that's why we can inhabit the minds of these people who are so different from us mm-hmm. and and somehow find something to relate to in their experience or at least be able to understand it on a on that basic elemental level of just being human. If, if our books had a theme today, it's like little subtle acts of rebellion mm-hmm. of just like taking and preserving the things that we are bound to, you know, whatever from our identities and histories and lineage we can, like, scrap together and keep for ourselves, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, we talked about Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey and how that's another important angle to this women in translation thing where it's like the translator we talk about so often it is an art of its own and their voice is in the work when they translate it so mm-hmm. yeah so wako nakayasu is bringing her voice to this poet's work and um treating translation in a different way i'm sure than a male translator would um or a non-female translator would so i'm glad you highlighted her work and one of her more recent works because I'm just so, so impressed 
with her and also just so grateful to have all the Sawakos of the world <laughs> translating for us. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to our own personal Women in Translation Month curriculum and continuing to enjoy these writers uh, and this list that we created for the rest of the, the year, yeah. the years to come. Um, yeah. Oh, this delicious list. I'm excited to share that list with people. And, and I hope that anyone, anyone listening who finds something that they love on that list, please reach out to us on socials or email us at thehostdispatch at gmail.com because we want to hear about what you're reading and what you love from our book list. And um, it's for you. But yeah, I'm just so excited to share that. This was so much fun. Thank oh, you. Man. Thank you, Joe. Um, it's always fun to, to talk with our team and celebrate literature and sell each other books. <laughs> oh, I can't believe it. Y'all, I just love women in translation even more now. And uh, too many books to read. <laughs> but that was the way it was before we started this. And now it's just even more so. Things have just shuffled up the, up the ladder, up the list. <laughs> oh, happy Women in Translation Month. Thank you so much. 